If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 752. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, free audiobook of the same title read by yours, Truly Forgotten Founders. It's a great book. You can also support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You can enroll there free of charge. Get the class. You've already heard about that. Purchase one or more classes. I've got a new live class that will launch in 2023 that I will be offering very soon. Sales for that class will run through January. So you hear more about it in January too. But um, you can go out and start enrolling in that now. And let me tell you, we had a live class uh, this past a couple of months, November and December, and it was more fun than I've had doing any class any time at McClanahan Academy. They are a great opportunity to meet people who think like you, to interact with me live, to ask me questions directly, uh, and not have to filter through email and everything else. It's a it's an opportunity you just don't want to miss. So sign up for those live classes when I offer them. I'll have more in 2023 on a variety of topics. I will bring back the class I just offered. Maybe in 2023, it might be 2024, I don't know yet, but it is going to come back at some point. So if you missed out on the last one, you'll get it again. Uh, But that's not guaranteed for any of these. So you want to sign up for the live classes when you can. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com or click on the heart button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. Great ways to send send a few pennies, I should say, my way. I'm glad it's the last podcast of the year because I'm getting tongue-tied today. You can also support the show by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Make makes you know great Christmas gifts. My books make great Christmas gifts. You can purchase those at Amazon. It's the best place. My latest, of course, is Southern Scribblings, but also the Jeffersonian Tradition and a number of others. Um, there's actually a book on a topic I'm talking about today, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. That book uh, with Clyde Wilson has a chapter on John C. Calhoun, who I'm looking at today in our topic. Um, So a lot of good stuff. You can also, of course, support the show by subscribing to the podcast. Rate, review, and subscribing. Letting people know you love it. Give that five-star review. Leave a text review. Comment on the YouTube videos. Watch the videos through for the algorithm. Do things you can to help support the show. And share it around on social media. And again, send me those show requests. I do want to hear or read what you want to hear. And as I said, this is wrapping up 2022. So let me say something about the fans and some things today. Um, this podcast is um, it's, it's just doing phenomenal. And I know, uh, you know people often measure success of a podcast by how many millions of people you get listened to, how many thousands of downloads or whatever it is. I hold my own there. But I will say that I think this podcast has done a tremendous job in reaching the people I want it to reach. We've had a lot of organic growth. I do this for you, the listeners, and there's so many dedicated listeners and people that send me emails and comments and nice things to say, and I appreciate all of that. I don't respond to a lot of it 
because I get so much of it, not, not being conceited, but I get a lot of things because I do a lot of different things online. So I get a lot of correspondence. It's very hard for me to respond back to everything. Uh, but I do appreciate everything you do and for the show and being a supporter of it and sharing it around and letting people know you like it. It means a lot to me when you do that. And this podcast is heard in you know, 90, over 90%, 95% of my listeners come from the United States, but there are listeners in other parts of the world, you know, multiple countries, dozens of countries around the world. So I appreciate you when you're coming in from a different country and listening to an American podcast, mostly about American issues. But like the topic of today, it's not confined to the United States. This could be something that anybody in any part of the world could gain something from. So I do appreciate my international listeners as well, people that will go out and listen to the show in other parts of the world and try to gain something from it. Um, you all are great, and I, and I do want to thank you in this holiday season for what you've done for the show and, of course, McClanahan Academy subscribers and people that purchase classes there and people that do things that help keep this all of this stuff going. Um, the podcast is always free of charge. I do it for you because it, it helps me get this stuff off my mind. When you go out, anybody knows this, when you start reading a lot of material, you just have to talk about it. And for a lot of us, there's no real way to talk about it other than with like-minded people around the world. You don't have somebody in your life maybe immediately that you can do that with, but you're not alone. There are people out there that think like you, and there are people out there that are interested in the same things you are. And the internet has offered a great opportunity for us to try to converse and have a conversation about the things that we're interested in, no matter what it is. It can be on any topic. It can be political. It can be you know, uh, uh, some type of hobby that you have. The internet allows that to happen. So um, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart and also you know, from, uh, from my family and everything else that, that we do um, because you make all of this possible as listeners. Now, this last listener-generated episode of the year is on republicanism. And there was a question, you know, what is this? Can you, can you help me wrestle with this issue of republicanism? What does that actually mean? What, how, how did the founding generation conceptualize of this topic? What do they mean by that? What do they mean by republican government? And, of course, the question was framed in a way that went back to Madison because, essentially, he said that you know, republic, republicanism is popular participation in government. He said this in The Federalist. And so a lot of times you get republicanism and democracy as synonymous, that the two are the same thing, that simply voting or public participation is the same thing as republicanism. Now, that's not necessarily true. There is a part of republicanism that does rely, and a major part, I mean, it's, a, it's an important component of republicanism, relies on popular participation in government. You have to have that to have a Republican form of government. There has to be popular participation in the government. There's no one in the founding generation, no one in the 19th century, no one that would argue otherwise. Popular participation in the government was seen as essential for good government. Now, how do we measure that popular participation is another question. Is it simply majoritarian voting? Is it, uh, can we restrict the suffrage? 
Can we do these kind of things? Because popular participation can be a loaded uh, phrase, right? I mean, you, you could say, well, these people can participate and these people can't because we think these people are not capable of participating or these people should not participate for a particular reason. You can get into those issues when you talk about popular participation. For example, if you go back and look at the ancient republics, their, their participation was select, right? In, in, in Athens, it was a select group of people that participated in the government, but they called it Republican in form. I mean, um, and same thing in Rome, same thing in Sparta. You go back to the classical republics, and you had limited and strict participation in the, in the process of government. But yet still, it was Republican because there was popular participation. Now, what we've done in the United States and all throughout the Western world is expand out this notion of popular participation to include anybody as long as they're over a certain age. And we think that is uh, the highest form of democratic and then also republican government. But popular participation alone is not enough when you're talking about what it means to be Republican with a lowercase r. And I say that based on example. Now, there's a famous uh, painting by Jacques-Louis David. It's the Oath of the Horati. And it's for Republican Rome, and you have a father sending his three sons off to war. And he's holding the swords out, and the sons are reaching for the swords if you've never seen this painting, it is a dramatic painting. You have the three sons, wives, and children in the background weeping. And, of course, none of those sons came home. So you have a father sacrificing his sons for the good of the republic. This is kind of how, you know, that was conceptualized. In other words, republicanism has a certain amount of virtue and sacrifice to it. It's not just the spoils of government, which is where... Uh, the people that believed in republicanism would say government then devolves into corruption and malfeasance. So uh, corruption and malfeasance because you have um, this spoils process and perfidy and other things. I mean, you get some pretty serious issues once you start looking at popular participation simply clamoring over the spoils. This is what Calhoun spent a lot of time writing about with the concurrent majority. When government becomes the process by which you get the spoils and you have simple majoritarian government, you get a serious problem because the simple majority, the plus one, will then plunder the other side. And the other side will use the Constitution or any legal restraints as a shield to try to protect themselves, once in power, they're going to do the exact same thing. This is where I talk about over and over again, you know, we have to be careful about owning the other side when you have power because it's more likely as a conservative, you're going to be in the minority on a regular basis than in the majority. You might be there for a time, but when you simply have paper shields, um, and these things are not based on virtue, which is a key component of republicanism, you are doomed. So when you look at someone like George Washington, who was actually sculpted in a toga, right? A Republican toga. He's a Republican. Or you look at someone like Patrick Henry, who talked about liberty. Uh, 
these people were reared on stories of Greece and Rome, of the classics, and of this sacrifice for the greater good, this sacrifice for the good of the whole, and of virtue in government. You had to have not just virtuous citizens, but virtuous leaders of your government. And Washington's greatest move, someone actually sent me an email the other day, How convinced me that Washington was good. Well, I wrote Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, and I criticized Washington in that book. Um, I don't know if the individual read the book, but I was highly critical of Washington with the Whiskey Rebellion, with signing the bank bill into law. I was critical of those things. I thought Washington made some serious mistakes, and of course, he relied too much on Hamilton. But when you go back and look at Washington's character, and Washington as a Republican with a lowercase r, it was his example that really molded the American character in the late 19 or uh, I'm sorry, late 18th and early 19th century. People thought of Washington as the embodiment of what it meant to be an American. This was a Virginian. So there was a certain Southern element to it. Southerners were interested in Republicanism. So were Northerners, but Southerners had this vision of Republicanism, and they talked a lot about it. Virginians talked about this stuff incessantly and what it meant to be Republican. Washington, in giving up all political power at the conclusion of the American War for Independence, was one of the most magnanimous decisions in the history of the Western world. George Washington could have been Frederick the Great. George Washington could have been Napoleon. Now, of course, there's no Napoleon at this point, but he could have been something like that. He could have been Caesar. He could have been someone that came in, seized power, and became an American dictator. There were a lot of people who would have supported this. Hamilton himself stood up in 1787 and said we need an elected king. And he certainly had Washington in mind. When the entire executive branch was designed, George Washington was the man they were all thinking about. Why? Because of his Republican character. They trusted him to do the right thing and to make the right decisions that would not lead to an American monarchy. That would not lead down the road to despotism. The problem with all that, of course, is that there's only one Washington. Everyone that followed could not be George Washington. John Adams wrestled with this kind of stuff. John Adams, for all of his failings and all the things I don't like about John Adams, John Adams certainly was conscious of the fact that he wanted to keep this Republican form of government and not appear to be monarchical. There was a, a contradistinction between Republican and monarchy. Monarchy not being a government that has popular consent or popular will or popular participation. It's rule of one with no popular participation. So Adams wanted to ensure that that happened. And of course you go completely Republican for the next 24 years after um, John Adams is defeated in the presidency of 1800. And you have Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, which of course we talked about that this week with Kevin Goodsman. So this idea of republicanism was always put against monarchy, but as as popular government, but there had to be that virtuous element to it. So if I had to sell you on George Washington, it was his virtue as a man that made him the most important, the indispensable man 
in American history, not just because of political power, not because of mistakes he made, and he made them, but because of his character. That's something that was always pointed out with men like Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson. In contrast to U.S. Grant, there's no, there's no comparison between Lee and Grant in character. We can talk about ideas. We can talk about all these other things. But in terms of character, Lee was head and shoulders above Grant. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what all the neocons are running around trying to elevate Grant now. Make Grant the better general. Make Grant the better this, the better that. The real ideologue. The real hero of America. For years we knew Grant was what he really was, which was a hard-drinking scoundrel. Um, I mean, Grant was uncouth, unlettered, really just not a very good guy. But Lee, on the other hand, was, like Washington, a Republican with a lowercase r. A man bound to duty, a man bound to principle, a man bound to restraint. Just look at his character after the war and saying, I'm not going to profit on my name. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go take a job at a small college and become a college president, and I'm just going to kind of ride off into the sunset. This is Davidson's Lee in the Mountains. That's why that poem is so beautiful. And Washington, the same thing. And Lee grew up in Washington's family. He understood these things. So all Americans did. To be George Washington, to emulate someone, you should emulate George Washington. If there are... You know, young men listen to this podcast, or I know that you know mothers listen to it and fathers. If you want your sons to be like someone in American history, it's George Washington, it's Robert E. Lee. If you want to go back to that period of time, these are the American heroes that they should emulate. Um, not because they didn't make mistakes. Every man does, because every man has fallen. Every man makes mistakes. Every man is going to make mistakes, moral mistakes, physical mistakes, mental mistakes. Nobody's perfect. These things happen. But when you look at character, character matters. And what people are willing to do in their own personal lives and try their best and do their best to lead a virtuous life, that matters. And so when you go back to Republican form of government, that virtue is an important component. And if you don't have virtue, you don't really have a government anymore. You don't have a government of laws or justice or liberty. You have a government of men because it's all about their own self-interests. And this is where I wanted to go to Calhoun today with this, because uh, there's a great book that was published uh, in the early 90s by Transaction Publishers. It's hard to get a copy now, but it's John, it's uh, Clyde Wilson's uh, The Essential Calhoun. And um, it's a great book because what Clyde Wilson does in this particular book is pull out extensive quotes from the man himself about different issues. And one of them, of course, is Republican government. What does it mean to have a Republican government? Now, we know popular participation is important. John Taylor of Caroline, for example, wrote a letter in uh, the early 19th century uh, about Kentucky's Constitution. And um, he talks about Republican government being essentially popular participation, people's participation in it, the popular influence and input in government was essential for republicanism. If you didn't have that, you didn't really have a republican form of government. So here is the great southern uh, 
philosopher John Taylor talking about republicanism as popular participation in government. And he says that you know, checks and balances are basically ineffectual if you don't have popular will, if you don't have the people involved. And Calhoun would say a lot of the same stuff, but he would always talk about restraint as being essential for republicanism. And there's a beautiful quote that Calhoun has, and let me find it, um, where he talks about statesmen and a politician. This is a quote from uh, 1830. So here we are nearly 200 years ago, and this is what Calhoun had to say about the difference between a statesman and a politician. A statesman being someone who is Republican, a politician being someone who is simply interested in his own interests, his own well-being, someone who is looking for political power. That's a politician, and we have 535, for the most part, politicians in the United States Congress. We don't really have any statesmen anymore. We have a few. I mean, you could take a few out of there. Maybe we have 530 politicians in the United States Congress and a handful of statesmen because they're in it for their own well-being and their own personal aggrandizement and uh, benefit. So here's what Calhoun said about statesmen and a politician. He said, quote, The distinction between the statesman and the politician is broad and well-defined. The former meaning the statesman, is an ornament and blessing to his country. But the latter, meaning the politician, a pest. No one is worthy of the public confidence who does not place himself on principle and services as the means of advancement. No, Let me read that again. No one is worthy of the public confidence who does not place himself on principle and services as the means of advancement. Principle and services. Your principles, your principle defense of the order, the legal order, the constitution, and the services, the service to your constituents, if that is not where you place your advancement, you are not worthy of advancement. Now, of course, a politician will say, well, I do that. I serve my community. I get them this. I get them that. I do all these things for them. Where's your commitment to principle? If your commitment is, I believe in the Constitution, but then you're going to go out and vote for all this other junk that you're going to give them, which is unconstitutional, then you're not very principled. It comes down to you serving and being in power then. He says, intrigue and cunning will, I trust, prove as feeble as they are detestable. Great quote. And when you go out and, look, you know, Clyde Wilson has talked a lot about statesmanship versus politicians and what that means. He is always referring back to Calhoun. The man spent most of his career, 30 years, with John C. Calhoun, front and center on a regular basis. It's hard not to absorb Calhoun when you do that. And if you had to absorb any political philosopher in America, there's no one better to spend 30 years with than John C. Calhoun. You can criticize Calhoun from a modern standpoint on his views on slavery. That's easy to do. But when you look at his views on government, they're really it's, it's uh, incontestable. It's irrefutable, many of the things he said about government in his long career in public service. And Calhoun spent uh, 
almost his entire adult life in public service. From 1812 or 1811, when he enters Congress, until the day he died in 1850, he was involved in public service. So you're talking about nearly 40 years of his life in service to the constituents of South Carolina, or in a broad sense, the United States as vice president. So Calhoun and and what he saw in D.C., what he saw in his time in government, is someone we should pay attention to. There's another quote that he had here, and this is from 1839. And it had to do with the establishment of the Smithsonian Institution on a foreign grant. Now, I want to go back to Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina, because at one point Congress was debating whether to uh, spend money on the statue on a statue of George Washington. And Nathaniel Macon was completely against it. He was completely against it, not because he didn't think Washington was great, everyone did, but because he thought this would be a waste of public expenditure. It was $100,000. $100,000. And he thought this was going to be a massive boondoggle and a massive waste of public money. And he said, you know, Washington essentially is a great man. No one's going to deny that. But we should not spend our money unwisely. And so Republicanism also had an element of it of frugality in the public money. It's a public trust that you have when you go to government and you are provided the tax funds of the citizens of that United States. And they put their trust in you to do the right thing with it, to be as frugal as possible. Because it's their money. Now, when you add a whole other element, people that actually don't really pay much in at all, and they simply want the spoils of it, then you get the politician. But for people that go to D.C., or they go to your state capitol, and they have a public trust to be good stewards of the money, not to blow it, but in Republican virtue, to spend it wisely. It's not their money. You can blow your own money all day on whatever you want to spend it on. But when somebody sends you money and you want to do the right things with it, you know, how can we do this and in good public trust do this wisely? That's important. So spending money wisely was also an important part of republicanism. Adhering to the written constitution, the constraints of government, being constrained by the law is an important part of republicanism that Calhoun talks about and quote after quote. Not being, uh, he, he did talk about popular will and, and the voice of the people is important and public opinion is important. But then also being a statesman and doing what's right because of the law or because you're a good steward on principles of the things that are necessary in government. So let me read this quote. This is from the United States Senate in 25th of February, 1839. He says, quote, This is a bill making provision for the common benefit of all mankind, but we are restricted in our powers. So even though it might be beneficial, we're restricted by the law of the land, which is the Constitution, which we said on principle and on oath, an oath we cannot go beyond. The question whether we have the power to establish a university or not was a subject of consideration in an early stage of our government, and President Washington decided that Congress had the power. 
but the question was voted down and never revived. So Congress said we don't have the power. Even though Washington said we did, Congress said we don't. And now, what would we do? We accept a fund from a foreigner, and what do and, and would do what we are not authorized to do by the Constitution. So what would we do? We accept money from a foreigner, and we, we're going to spend money on something that we're not authorized by the Constitution to do. We would enlarge our grant of power derived from the states of this union. Sir, can you show me a word this, that goes to invest us with such a power? I not only regard the measure proposed as unconstitutional, but to me it appears to involve a species of meanness which I cannot describe, a want of dignity wholly unworthy of this government. Look at what he's talking about, virtue, a want of dignity wholly unworthy of this government. It's not just about the Constitution. It's a want of dignity, virtue. You've got to have virtuous people in the government if you want to maintain Republican government which is a popular government, representation, etc., etc. Some years ago, we accepted a statue of Mr. Jefferson, which is no more like him than I am, and we made a tacit admission by his acceptance that we are too stingy to purchase one worthy of the man and of the nation. And now what will we do by this? We would accept a donation from a foreigner to do with it what we have no right to do, and just as if we were not rich enough ourselves to do what is proposed, or too mean to do it if it were in our power. Sir, we are rich enough ourselves, and if we are not, this bequest cannot give us the power. So he's looking at this in so many different ways, right? It's virtuous not to, to, to abide by the Constitution. We don't have the power to do this. But then we didn't even want to spend money on Jefferson. Why would, but we took a statue from a foreigner that doesn't even look like the man. And what does that say about us as a people? And if we're going to take this money for this for the Smithsonian, which they ultimately took, if we don't have the money to do it, why are we begging foreigners to do this? And uh, why would we do this to ourselves? It's not virtuous to do that. So there's so much going on here in Calhoun's statements about virtue and honor and you know our own self-sufficiency, republicanism, self-sufficiency. You can do it yourself. You don't have to rely on someone else to do it. It comes down to your own rules, your own regulations, your own laws, and your own treasury, your own pocketbook. And what are we saying about ourselves if that's not something we're willing to do? He also said in Philadelphia in 1842, here's another great quote, the great cause of popular government it has its foundation in truth and justice. And if maintained in the spirit of truth and justice, its final and complete success is certain, but otherwise its defeat is no less inevitable. So if it's maintained in truth and justice, popular government, it's going to be successful. But if it ever deviates from that, from truth and justice, it becomes inevitable that it will fall. So again, virtue, telling the truth, being open, publicly honest, being good stewards of the money, being following the Constitution, being principled in these things. This is what mattered the most to Calhoun throughout his public life and what should matter to everyone who enters government, whether on the state, local, or federal level. Being a public servant and a good steward of not only the law, but also the finances that are provided for you. 
That shows republicanism. It's a fellowship of these people. That's important when you start thinking about this concept and this definition of republicanism. That's just about uh, you know, diffusion of powers because John Taylor of Caroline said that's not enough. Diffusion of powers is not enough to ensure that we have good government. We have to have some type of popular check. But he did not mention in that particular letter federalism, which at the end of the day is always the great check because the people have more control over your state and local government than they do over the center. And that's where you had the founding generation talk about the states. If the general government does something that's not authorized to do, the states would be powerful enough to check it. This is coming out of New England, not just the South. But then, of course, you have the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. And I said Taylor was writing that letter in the early 19th century. It's the late 18th century. Excuse me on the date. Um, but you have the states being powerful enough to check the center because you have popular will to a greater extent in those states than you do at the federal level. So if there's anything we learn from this particular show, and we talk about uh, you know the theme of the show, which is think locally, act locally, that has to come down to republicanism too. There has to be some level of republicanism with a lowercase r, statesmanship, statescraft, virtue, honor, uh, principle. These things are important when you're talking about even people at the local and state level, because that will then reflect in their decisions. And we need this throughout society. So you have to have people that have these principles and honor and virtue and lead these kind of lives outside of that. And we have to stop looking at people to be our, our leadership class or establishment class who don't follow these particular principles. And if we don't do that, we're bound to have politicians and corruption because they're already corrupt in their own lives. So again, this is the end of 2022. I do appreciate everyone for listening. If you want the podcast, look, I've got one more podcast tomorrow because I've got the Abbeville podcast for this week and that one will be wrapping up too after tomorrow. But there are hundreds of old episodes of the Brian McClanahan show. This is, you know, we're into 700 plus episodes of the show, 740 plus episodes of the show. And um, I, I think that, you know, going out and listening to these old episodes, like I've been doing this for, you know, six years. So go out and listen to those old episodes. I say a lot of the same things throughout time over these episodes. And they're not dated because oftentimes they're on larger principles and it's not on a particular current event. I do talk about some current events so you can go back and see if I was right or wrong about these things. But they're also on bigger issues than that. And I hopefully you can learn from these things. And if you like the podcast, you're really going to like McClanahan Academy. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Because McClanahan Academy is much of what I do here. Um, just in more detail when I talk about uh, specific and particular issues in American history. Uh, whether it's government, whether it's just you know, general American history, or whether it's a particular topic. We get into primary documents like John C. Calhoun. I have a class reading John C. Calhoun. There's so much good stuff out there, and they make great gifts. Um, so go out and grab those McClanahan Academy classes. Uh, and also, think about that live class because you get me live for four sessions. It's amazing stuff. All right. hope everyone has a very merry and happy Christmas. Um, you know, a very safe new year. And I will see you in 2023. Happy New Year, everybody. See you then.